You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Over the past couple of weeks, uh, we have been looking at the creation account in Genesis 1. And the first week, we looked at the Creator, uh, our magnificent God. Uh, and last week, we looked at how that God, the Creator, created all things through His powerful Word. He, filled, he formed the earth, and then He filled it with good and glorious things. Now, I want, if I ask you uh, just to pause for a moment and to think about the glory of creation, I wonder what um, images would first pop into your mind. Like when you try to think about the glory of creation, what do you first think of? Do you think of like a majestic mountain range? Maybe you think of the Pacific Ocean. Maybe you think of a beautiful sunset. Uh, you think of a photo of a distant galaxy or, or a photo, or you, you think of a magnificent animal, a Bengal tiger, powerful racehorse. I'm guessing when you think about the glory of creation, you probably don't think of that person at work or at school that drives you crazy, right? You, you probably don't think of a politician with whom you disagree. I, I'm guessing you're not thinking of Vladimir Putin right now or Kim Jong-un, those as the pinnacle of God's creation. And yet, God's account here in Genesis 1 tells us that human beings are the crown of creation. Like, even the meanest, nastiest, most unlikable person on earth is clothed with glory in some sense because they're created in the image of God, the imago Dei, we call it. So, if you really want to immerse yourself in creation, you don't need to go for a hike in the mountains. You don't need to take a solitary walk on the beach. Just go take a, a, a bus ride in downtown Austin, a crowded bus ride on a hot summer day with people bumping up against you, invading your personal space, wiping their sweat all over you. You'll be right in the thick of creation <laughs> in all its glory because human beings are the crown of creation. Today, as we look at Genesis, we're just going to focus on the creation of humanity. What does it mean to be a human being created in the image of God? It couldn't be a more relevant question right now, could it? Like, because there are a lot of competing narratives right now about what it means to be human, about how to define our identity how to define our purpose as human beings, about how we should view ourselves, how we should view others, how we should relate to the world, who we are, what we're here for. Are we valuable? Do we have value? And if we do, where does that value come from? What does it mean to be a human being created in God's image? And as we look at this text in Genesis 1, I just want to give us three words to help us think about the Imago Dei, the image of God in people. And the first word is dignity. Dignity. Human beings are made to represent God and reflect God. Therefore, they have great dignity. Look at verse 26 in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the narrative in uh, chapter one changes here. If you were here with us last week, you'll notice that it's different than the narrative we heard last week. It, it, it slows down. Up to this point, it's just been cruising along with this repetitive rhythm. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be plants. And there were plants. And God said, let, let there be uh, uh, animals. And there were animals and birds. But here in verse 26, everything slows down. And now God says, hey, hold on. Let's talk this over. Let's discuss this. Let's make man in our image. Let's make man in our likeness. Who's God talking to? Well, apparently he's talking to himself. This, in verse 26, is divine dialogue. This verse gives us a hint that there's a plurality of persons in our one God. There are three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here we get a glimpse into the very mind of God in this verse. We, we, we get to hear what God is thinking and saying to himself. And what God says is, hey, what I'm about to make is really special. Unlike anything I've made up until this point. Because what I'm about to make will be in my image, in my likeness. See, all the other creatures and living organisms up to this point had been made according to their kind. You see that through Genesis 1. They came forth according to their kind. But human beings were going to be made according to the king, right? In his image, in his likeness. Now, those terms, image and likeness, they essentially mean the same thing, but they bring slightly different pictures into our mind. An image makes us think of a statue, or an idol, and that's how it often gets used in the Bible. Because in the ancient Near East, it was common practice for a king to put up images of himself all over his sovereign domain to remind people who the king was. Oh, okay, this is, must be the land of Nebuchadnezzar because there's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. So that was common to the people back then. And so when the people of Israel heard Moses use the word image, they knew Moses is saying that all of us are images of the king, statues to the king, simply by being human beings. Like, by being a human being, you point to the fact that there is a king reigning and ruling. There is a God. The word likeness is a, the same, but a little bit different. It makes us think of a mirror, right? When, when I look in a mirror, I see a likeness of, my, of myself. I see an accurate reflection of me. And what this is saying is that when God looks at us, he sees a reflection of himself. We reflect his glory, his character in the world simply by being human. So taken together, image and likeness mean that we represent God and we reflect God in the world. What dignity the Bible gives us as human beings right from the very start. Dignity. Now, look at verse 27. The style of verse 27 expresses the dignity even more. Look at verse 27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the first poetry in the Bible, right here on page one. See how it's offset in verse? It's poetry. It's like God is singing about the creation of humanity. He breaks into song over his masterpiece. Men and women created in the image of God are his highest creation, so it's poetry. Kent Hughes captures the wonder of what verse 27 is communicating. He says, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy, though you could observe up close the protostars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth, in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation, the Imago Dei. Because when the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall still live. He or she is immortal. So the image of God, and I want you to hear this, the image of God in people is not based on anything that we bring to the table. It's not based on performance or capacity or merit or resume or status or smarts, or ability, it's simply an identity given to us by God. It's bestowed upon us. So, no matter who a person is, Christian or atheist, rich or poor, genius or or mentally challenged, Olympic athlete or physically disabled, unborn child or 100 years old, Mother Teresa or murderer, they all bear the image of God. Even if that image has been damaged by sin and by life in a broken world. Because of the image of God, all humans have dignity. All of them. You can't think of one that doesn't. Dignity. This has... Tons of implications, obviously. I just want to mention a couple of implications. Number one, how we see ourselves. And number two, how we see others. First, how we see ourselves. Both in terms of value and identity. A lot of times we don't feel very valuable. So we try to do all the right things to make ourselves look more valuable, to to add value to our life. Sometimes I think we see ourselves like as if we're costume jewelry. You know what I mean by that? We feel kind of cheap and without value, sort of worthless deep down. And so we try to make our lives all shiny and sparkly on the outside to to appear more valuable. but, But we feel kind of cheap, like costume jewelry. But Genesis 1 is saying to us that we're actually more like tarnished silver. Like deep down, we're incredibly valuable. Even though outwardly, we're a mess sometimes. We're tarnished. We're, we have impurities. We have imperfections hiding our value, hiding our dignity. So we need to see ourselves the way God sees us. We have great value. God doesn't make junk, right? But also, because of the image of God in us, we don't have to create an identity for ourselves. 
Identity is something we receive from God. Now, an example of this from verse 27 is maleness and femaleness. There's a lot of confusion about that right now, is there not, right? A relatively recent idea that we hear a lot now is this term assigned a sex at birth. What sex were you assigned at birth? Which implies that later in life, it's on me to figure out who I really am in terms of gender and sexuality. Like, it's up to me to decide my identity related to that. But Genesis 1 is telling us here that maleness or femaleness is part of the image of God in us. It's something we receive from God. And it's, and listen, it beautifully reflects God to the world. And there are a myriad of ways we can live out maleness or femaleness. We don't all live it out in the same way. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have insecurities about that. We all have deficiencies. We all have brokenness. Some even have dysphoria about that. But God says, hey, I gave you that identity. I created you, male or female, with great dignity. You can see yourself like I do. Right? You, you, have, you don't have to create an identity for yourself. The other implication of dignity for human beings has to do with how we see others. Like, think about how you see others. Am I mostly annoyed by others? Do I just mostly put up with others? Do I treat people differently based on their abilities or the capacity or whatever, or what I think they're going to add to my life? How do I treat the guy at the rental car counter? This was relevant in my life about a week ago. How do I treat the solicitor at my door? Because he or she is the image of God. So, see, we got to be true to our theology, don't we? If we're going to say that people are created in the image of God, then we need to treat them that way. This impacts how we approach social ethics. For example, how we view the unborn is an Imago Dei issue. Racism is an Imago Dei issue. Euthanasia is an Imago Dei issue. Care for the mentally ill is an Imago Dei issue. Pornography is an Imago Dei issue. If all people have dignity because they're all created in the image of God, then we can never cheapen life or exploit people or demean people or treat people as less than. We choose life for them. We, we choose care for them. We choose honor for them. Because of the Imago Dei, every human being has dignity. But there's another word that helps us think about what it means to be human, and it's the word dependence. Dependence. We're not only made to reflect and represent God, we're made to trust God. Look at verse 27 again. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times in this one little verse, it says that we are created. And I know this is really obvious, but sometimes the obvious things are really important to catch in the Bible. It's really important to know about ourselves that we are created. We are creatures. We're not the creator. We're the image of God, but we're not God. We're neither self-generating nor self-sustaining. We are dependent. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, 
it starts to develop and explain the creation of humanity. Chapter 1, verse 27, simply is a statement of fact. God created human beings in his own image. But chapter 2 begins to unfold that and, and, and tell us all that that means. How did he do it and what does it mean? And chapter 2 not only highlights our dignity, it also highlights our dependence. I want to look at one key verse in chapter 2. Look at verse 7, Genesis 2, verse 7. You heard it a second ago. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, a living being, a living uh, soul. So Genesis 1, 27 was poetry. This is prose. Genesis 1, 27 was lofty. This is, this is real earthy, isn't it? But both verses show that human beings are, are set apart from the rest of creation. There's a couple things that we learn about human beings here in this verse in Genesis 2. First, we learn that human beings are God-formed. God-formed. Look at it again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Notice it's the Lord God who creates here. Yahweh Elohim. All throughout Genesis 1, we've just been told that it was God who created all things. Elohim created all things. But now Moses uses the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, the name God uses to establish relationship with his people. This is a very intimate name. Yahweh Elohim formed mankind. That word formed is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the work of a potter. So God is like, a, he's like an artist here doing very intentional, creative work, and he's personally involved in the work, getting his hands dirty. Like pottery, I think, is the most tactile art form that there is, like where your hands are doing the work of forming and the material is getting all over you. Yahweh, Elohim, formed mankind of dust from the ground. This is to remind us that we're not from heaven. We're of the earth, right? We weren't a soul in heaven that God pulled off the shelf one day and sent us to earth to be born. That's not it. We're of the earth. It's where we're from. There's a wonderful little play on words here. God formed the man, Adam in Hebrew, from the ground, Adamah in Hebrew. So the very name of humanity is derived from the word for ground, dirt, dust. Eugene Peterson says it's too bad the English language doesn't capture this. He says we could say from the earth came earthlings. <laughs> but he said that's too science fiction sounding. He said we could say from the dust came dusty, but that's a little bit like a Western movie. But he wants us to know God formed us from dust, which ought to produce what in us? Humility. Humility. In fact, the Latin word for ground, humus, and the Latin word for human have the same derivative. And it's, it's where we get our word humble or humility. We ought to be humble because we're not invincible. We're fragile. We're dependent. Without God, we're just dust. 
we're dust. But that's not all this verse teaches us. Human beings are not just God-formed, we're also God-breathed. Significant. God breathed. Look at the verse again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. If you thought God forming you like a potter with his own hands was intimate, it gets even more intimate. Derek Kidner says, breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. See, God gave his own breath to the man. He, God blew his life into us, not just animating our body, but giving us spiritual life. One commentator says that God's breath is not, not only brings life to the man, it brings spiritual understanding. Job 32.8 uses that term. It not only brings life, it brings a functioning conscience. Proverbs 20, verse 27 uses that term. It gives human beings moral capacity. It gives us a consciousness of God. Like, what sets me apart from an animal? What sets me apart from my dog, Woodrow? He's a good boy, Woodrow. He and I are both living, breathing creatures, and we have a lot in common. He likes to eat. I like to eat. He likes to sleep. I like to sleep. He likes to go on walks. I like to go on walks. He doesn't like it when somebody comes to the front door, and neither do I. (laughs) Right? We have a lot in common. We're just a couple of living, breathing, eating, sleeping dudes living in the same house. With one big difference. God has breathed into me the capacity to make moral decisions. The capacity, in fact, to worship the capacity to decide whether I'm going to trust God or not. Woodrow doesn't think about God. I've never caught him reading the Bible, praying. He doesn't confess his sins like we did today. He doesn't repent of his sins. He just puts his tail between his legs and heads upstairs, and he forgets about it five minutes later because he's a dog. He's a dog, precious in God's sight, but not God-breathed, not in the image of God. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, a living being, literally a living soul. See, according to this, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I'm a unity of body and spirit, a unity of breath and dirt made to live in trusting relationship. With God, it's dependence. One sign of the image of God in us is a consciousness of God and a willingness to trust him. You know, later in Genesis 2, God is going to give some commands to the man. For example, hey, don't eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden. Commands are an opportunity to trust God, aren't they? To decide, will I depend on God by doing what he says is best for me? Or will I try to just be my own God and go my own way? God doesn't command the animals. He doesn't hold them accountable or treat them as responsible, but he does call us to consciously depend on him. We're made for God. We are made for God. We're made to depend on him. So 
Human beings are made with dignity, we're made for dependence, and lastly, the Imago Dei tells us we're made for dominion, dominion. We're made to rule with God. And I'm not going to say very much about this at all because we're going to explore it more deeply next week as we talk about work, as we talk about vocation. Uh, But let me just say today that God has given human beings a royal purpose that he hasn't given to any other creatures, not even the angels. You see it there in verse 28. Look back at Genesis 1, verse 28. Here's the purpose. And God blessed them. This is after he made them, he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first thing God does for human beings after creating them is he blesses them. Isn't that cool? Isn't that significant? Meaning he calls them good. He wills their good. He, he, he gives himself to the accomplishment of their good. That's what it means to bless someone. And then he gives humanity this great purpose, which actually flows out of his blessing of them. He tells us what we're here for in this verse. Human beings are called to serve alongside God as vice regents, representatives of the king. We're not the king, but we represent the king. And we are to relate to the rest of creation in the same way that he does. How does he relate to creation? What does he do in creation? We've seen it in Genesis 1. He fills the earth and he forms it. He fills and he forms, and that's our calling too. So he says, fill the earth. Look at it. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. In other words, have some babies, right? That's what he's telling them. He's like, I've given you as male and female the ability to recreate what I did in Genesis 2 verse 7 when I formed a living soul. You can bring forth life. What a high calling. You can bring forth life. But this is not just for moms and dads. Jesus actually calls all of us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Like when you make a disciple of Jesus, you are bringing forth new life, right? You're multiplying image bearers all over the earth. And then God says in Genesis 1, have dominion over all the earth. Rule over all the earth. In other words, use the power, God is saying, that I've vested in you to form the earth for the good of the earth and for the glory of God. What a high calling. What a high calling. Psalm 8 captures this. Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens, God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Who am I that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him, you have made us a little lower than God and crowned us with glory and honor. You have given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under our feet. What a high calling it is to be a human being. And I want you to know that the goal of dominion 
is not domination. That's not the goal. The goal of dominion is shalom, universal flourishing all over the earth. That's the goal of what he's calling us to here. So our call is to care for the earth and to cultivate it. We'll talk more about that next week. Our call is to steward the earth and its resources, not exploit them. We have dominion over the animals, but we're not to abuse animals or be cruel to them. Proverbs 12 says, a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal. I put that verse into practice this week. I spent $165 on a vet appointment and eye drops for Woodrow. I'm like, who's got dominion here? This verse calls us to create culture, to innovate, to build things, to fill the earth and to form it. That's the Imago Dei, doing what God does and looking like God looks, reflecting him and representing him in the world. Human beings are created in the image of God. We are the crown of creation, the crown of creation. But I think we all feel the tension of this text, don't we? We feel the tension. You just look around at the world, you look at humanity, you look at how things are going, you look in your own heart and you think, hey, doesn't seem like it. Like, if human beings have been given so much dignity, then why do we act so undignified? If human beings are made to depend on God, then why is so much of our story about me trying to gain independence from God? If we're made for dominion, then why have we abdicated that responsibility or abused that responsibility? And we know the answer. Most of you know the answer. We, we know that the fall of man happens in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to talk about the fall in the weeks ahead and all of its effects in the world. Sin entered the world and broke everything, including the image of God in us. One of my professors used to say that after the fall, the image of God is not erased, but it is defaced. It's still there, but it's defaced. We are a shadow of who we were created to be. We are in need of redemption. We need redemption. And the world needs redemption. And our only hope is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it says in Colossians 1. Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And by our faith in Christ, Our destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ, it says in Romans chapter 8. Our destiny is to be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, it says in Colossians 3. 1 Corinthians 15 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Christ. And even though we failed to exercise dominion in the way that we should, one day we'll rule with Christ, whom Hebrews chapter 2 says is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. With all things put in subjection under his feet, we will have dominion with him. The Imago Dei sets us apart in God's creation. It's, the image has been defaced, but it has not been erased. And it is being redeemed. It's good news. 
Let's thank the Lord for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.